0: Welcome to the free speech podcast my name is Siobhan Crawford and I'm a senior associate in the abuse team here I'm so pleased to welcome Nina Ross Nina is head of the abuse team at 12 Kings Bench Walk and a leading barrister in the field of abuse She sues both abusers in person and many institutions on behalf of survivors of abuse Including British Airways, the Ministry of Defence, local authorities, QONIC and many more The list is quite frankly endless People say about Nina that she is crystal clear in her thinking and analysis and a commanding presence when on her feet. I say that Nina does not shy away from difficult cases and is unafraid to run novel arguments to get the best result for those she represents. Most importantly, Nina's empathy for survivors of abuse radiates through every part of her work, always ensuring they and their wants are front and centre of the claim. Welcome, Nina. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. As you know, what we thought would be good to chat about today is the sorts of things that are likely to come up when you're bringing a claim for abuse and the hurdles that survivors face, but also the way that we as a team can get around them because what happens is solicitors and barristers work as a team. So I think to kick off, for people who don't know what a barrister actually does... Are you able to tell us a bit about your role in the claim?
1: Absolutely. Um, well, when you're uh, running an abuse claim, it's your solicitor who's the person who you're having the most regular day-to-day contact with throughout the life of your case. And then your solicitor will decide if and when a barrister needs to be involved. Uh, and your claim might not involve any um, uh, barrister uh, input, but at the other end of the spectrum, you might be meeting your barrister quite a lot. It depends on your case. Now, most of us barristers, we are not employed by the solicitor's firm. We're self-employed, and we work in a completely different and separate entity known as a Chambers. And the barrister is the person um, who would represent you uh, in court if your case went to trial. Um, Of course, most cases don't go to trial. Most cases, happily, uh, settle long before that. Uh, And many will settle at something which is called a settlement meeting, where the two sides get together and try and negotiate a deal. Now, a barrister would be the person who would be representing you in that settlement meeting and trying to get you the best possible result in your case. Uh, And your barrister might also attend uh, certain key meetings with your solicitor to provide advice on specific issues or on the value of your claim. And they will also be involved in drafting certain documents in your case. For example, the particulars of claim, which is a document that you uh, send to the court when you initially start your court proceedings. So in summary, it's your solicitor who handles your your case day to day and it's your barrister who gets involved as and when needed and ultimately will go to court and fight your case for you.
0: So, chambers, when I referenced 12 Kings Bench Walk in the introduction, that's the name of your chambers, and every barrister belongs generally to a set of chambers, and that's just a fancy word for an office, really, isn't it? It is a fancy word for an
1: office. <laughs> <laughs> think of us. Think of us like GPs in a surgery. We're all self-employed, but we all work out of chambers together, but we're all independent people who give independent advice to you and are separate from your solicitor's firm.
0: Yeah, and those key meetings that you referenced, I mean... Again, the list is endless as to when we might see you, but generally it might be if we're finding something tricky about the time limit or liability, which we're going to come on to. Or when we get to the stage of value, valuing your claim, then that's often when we come and see you as well. So it sort of trigger key points in the claim where you tend to come into play. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah I think
1: that is right. I think at certain key points it might be at the beginning of your case if there are some really um, complex issues that it's useful to have both the barrister and solicitor talking you through. It might be where you've had an offer from the other side Um, and your solicitor thinks it would be helpful for the barrister to provide some input on whether that's a good offer whether or not you should make a counter offer so it's we're we're sort of hired guns Uh, when we're needed we come in and we provide the advice we're asked to give
0: yeah and so moving on to some of that advice that you're likely to give so in respect of what I always say is the first hurdle when you're bringing a claim is something that is referred to by lawyers as limitation but really in simpler terms it's the time limit and for a lot of abuse case cases that where somebody was abused in childhood and they're much older now that comes into play so you're able to explain a bit about that time limit and how it works.
1: I am uh, and it's often one of the the key issues in a, in a claim arising out of sexual abuse um and you have to uh bring your claim within the time limit that applies to your case Uh, and the law on time limits is fiendishly complicated um, and different rules apply to different types of case but in most cases where you're claiming for injury arising out of abuse you have to bring your claim within three years of the abuse happening or if you were a child when the abuse happened then you've got to bring it by your 21st birthday. So that's, in a nutshell, what the time limits are. There are other uh, time limits in in certain types of case. Um, But what happens if you don't bring your case within the time limit? Well, that isn't necessarily the end of the road. Uh, In most types of cases, for injuries arising from abuse, the court has a discretion to allow your claim to proceed out of time. And the court will exercise that discretion in your favour if you can prove that it would be fair in all the circumstances to let you go ahead out of time. And in assessing whether it would be fair, the court will take into account a whole host of factors. And I think it would be helpful just to talk about three factors that often come into play. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first is the the length of the delay. So um, the longer the delay is in general terms, the harder it's going to be to persuade the court that you should still be able to bring your claim and the longer your delay is, the better your reasons for it have to be. <clears throat> but all of that said, there have been cases where the court's been prepared to allow your case, a, a case to proceed 20 or 30 years out of time. It, it all depends uh, on the facts mm. of the case.
0: It's really, I think it is really fact-specific because what I found was when you're looking at, Cases and when you're what you have to do is you have to try and step into the shoes of what would a judge do essentially. And like you said, most cases don't end up at trial. I'd say 95% of cases settle. So, again, that's a lawyer word for both sides coming to an agreement and providing compensation to the person bringing the claim without having to go before a judge. But what we both do is we prepare our cases as if you're going to trial because we bring the cases but the people we're suing are the ones who choose which ones to fight so you don't know when you're going to end up in trial so it's always best to prep from the start as if you're going to end up at trial and I think when you're thinking about what a judge is looking for when it comes to length of delay it's often reason and most importantly what evidence is still around so Is there contemporaneous evidence, so GP records, social services records? um, You'd be surprised, actually, I think, how many people keep their school records. Um, We've got a client who is in her mid-40s, and she was able to produce all her school reports from secondary school fairly recently, and she's been able to say look, this abuse meant that I didn't get what I should have got in my GCSEs. I'm not just saying that. Here's a report from my teachers saying this is what I should have got. So I think a lot of it, of it hinges on what's still around, right? I think that's exactly right. And I think you've got to the nub of it there. Um, although the court will take
1: into account all the circumstances of the case in deciding whether or not it's fair to go ahead ultimately what it will often come down to is a balancing act between how good are your reasons for the delay on the one hand versus how much the evidence has depleted or diminished Mm -hmm. due to the delay and the case that you give of the person who still had their school records from all those years ago I mean that's a fantastic example of where the claimant or she could say it's still possible to have a fair trial and look at what effect the abuse had on my schoolwork because here are my school records Mm -hmm. so it is that balancing act between the two things and in, in terms of you know reasons for the delay. There's no hard and fast rule for what a court is going to think is a good reason for delay. Again, it's all going to depend on your case. But but something that comes up quite a lot in abuse cases is that people will say they didn't bring a claim earlier because um, they were too ashamed or too embarrassed mm. or too psychiatrically unwell to come forward. So, for example, you might have someone who had PTSD and they, they tried to avoid all reminders of the abuse because it gave them flashbacks. Mm-hmm. And they might not have been able to come forward until they'd had therapy more recently when they were able to deal with it. Um, so, or, or you might have somebody who didn't tell a soul for years and then the police knocked on their door more mm-hmm. recently as part of an investigation. And it was at that point that the, that the person felt able to speak to the police and speak to solicitors and bring a claim. So those sorts of reasons for delay uh, might be considered good ones by the court and the courts have recognised in several previous cases that uh, abuse can have an inhibiting effect on people's ability to come forward and instruct solicitors and on that basis have decided that the delay shouldn't be held against them but obviously it's for the claimant to prove that the reasons are good and there might be all sorts of reasons uh, in a particular case why um, it's taken a long time to come forward. I think another common reason for, for people in abuse claims that they don't come forward earlier is that they didn't think... That they would be believed. It, it's often that people find out later in life that there were other victims of this perpetrator, or there's some sort of me too movement in the industry, and then you'll get people coming forward. For example, um, you know, I remember when um, the when Andy Woodward came forward in in 2016, saying mm-hmm. that he'd been um, he's a famous footballer and he came forward and said he'd been abused in the football world. That then led to lots of people who'd been abused in the football world coming forward, mm-hmm. um, and so it, you know, it, it may be that the court will consider those sorts of reasons for delay are, are good ones
0: yeah and i think that happens a lot i mean obviously you referenced the me too movement but it's i mean we did a documentary on abuse in the army cadets and there was an avalanche of cases that came to balbert and kemp for a specific unit but also across all of the army cadets and um, same with the scouts because i think the thing with those who abuse people. They say, if you tell anyone, you won't be believed. And it's always, I found, an imbalance of power between the abuser and the abused. And if you tell somebody, particularly a child, enough that they won't be abused, that percolates. And so I think that you feel so much less alone when people like Andy Woodward speak out, or people start speaking out about, you know, Jimmy Savile, that it empowers you to be able to pick up the phone and speak to somebody. And a lot of the time, when we speak to people, they have said, "You're the first person I've ever told about this abuse." So they're not saying they've not told their, you know, spouses, partners, family. They've not even told the police. We're the first person that they reach out to. And I think that there is a lot of power in that. And I think judges are really live to that as well. Well, good judges, because the other advice that we always give is you can get a judge who might have had a bad breakfast and <laughs> be <but laughs> in a bad mood. And that's something that you've got to think about when you're re- like sort of weighing up whether to go to trial or not is there's such a spectrum of what, you know, a discretion, as you say, of what a judge can decide. So that's something to be borne in mind. But I do think, to be fair to the judiciary, that they are alive to all of these issues. And when they're carrying out that analysis, because if you don't get over the time limit point, your whole claim fails. So if you don't, you know, when they're carrying out that analysis in the first instance of, OK, what I have to first turn my mind to is whether that I should waive this time limit. I think they tend to be quite fair in respect of that. I think that's
1: right. And I think there's an increasing awareness amongst the judiciary that silence is one of the fruits of the abuse. Mm. And to the extent that that is a fruit of the abuse, it would be unfair to hold it against the claimant as to why they haven't come forward earlier. But like you say, I mean, the judges are human beings, Mm. and this is a subjective assessment. So what one judge might think is a good reason for delay, another might not. But they are trained to take into account all of these factors and try to come to a fair view. Um, But of course, you know, they've got to balance the the reasons for the delay against, as you mentioned, the, the cogency Of the evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not uncommon in a claim arising out of abuse for the abuser to have died before the victim feels able to to bring a claim. Um, And in those circumstances, the court might find it's impossible now to have a fair trial because the perpetrator won't be there to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. But even then, again, it all comes down to the facts, because, you know, if the perpetrator was convicted before they died, um, or if they admitted the abuse before they died, then the fact that they've died might not prevent a fair trial being possible. So it it all comes down to what evidence is available and whether or not you can still have a fair trial. You know, what key witnesses are available? Are some untraceable or too ill to give evidence? What documents are still there? Have we still got all the medical records? As you mentioned, school records, social services. Records. So the court will weigh up the reasons for the delay as against how much evidence is still available. But also it's worth bearing in mind as a claimant that the defendant's got to prove that the evidence has become less cogent due to the delay and they can't just complain about prejudice if they haven't bothered to look for any evidence. So they've got to show that they've tried to find some evidence and they haven't, had, they haven't been able to do so because of the passing of time. So the court takes all of these factors into account and then comes to a view as to whether in all of the circumstances it would be fair to let the claim proceed.
0: Mm. That's important, isn't it? It has to be fair to whoever you're suing as well. And you do sometimes have people that don't carry out their best endeavours when looking for documents. And I think it's also important to say that certainly the way that we work is that if somebody ever said to us, I don't want you to speak to my mum, dad, brother, sister, there's certain people that even when they've disclosed and they're bringing a claim, they might not have yet disclosed to everybody and they might not feel able to do that Then we respect their wishes and we don't say well actually this would really help with evidence and we'd really like to speak to them and we have to speak to them again the important thing is making sure that the people we represent feel comfortable with all the actions that we take because ultimately we provide the advice and the people we represent make the decisions right
1: that's right. I mean, we're, we're here to give you advice about your case, but ultimately we can only act on your instructions. And if you say, we don't want you to speak to somebody, then we won't. Yeah.
0: yeah. So once you've got over the time limit point, in respect of... I think it's probably easier to break it down into who we're suing. So if you are suing the individual who actually assaulted you what would you be expecting to try and prove the abuse in order to try and win the claim and obtain compensation?
1: So if you're suing the person who perpetrated the abuse, then in some ways it's more straightforward because if you get over the limitation hurdle, then you simply need to prove that the abuse occurred. And if you prove that it occurred, then you're entitled to at least some compensation for the fact of what happened. Um, and there um, you have to prove that it happened on a balance of probabilities, so you have to show that it 's more likely than not that it happened and in these sorts of situations we'll be we 'll be looking for whether or not there are any witnesses that you, you told about it nearer the time and uh, any accounts that you 've given for example to the police or medical professionals over time in in many cases, there will be a conviction of the abuser, and in those circumstances there 's a presumption in law that the abuse happened, so in other words it will be for the perpetrator to prove that the abuse didn't happen. Uh, so in those circumstances it'll be a lot easier to succeed.
0: Mm. And also I think it it just makes common sense that it would be absurd that if somebody has been convicted in a criminal court where the bar is higher to be found guilty, that if they then came to the civil court and said, I, I didn't do it even though I was found guilty, a judge will have quite short shrift with that and actually Bolt Bird and Kemp had a case around that that had a bit of an offshoot legal point that actually the barrister in that case was your ex colleague that's right now master davison <laughs> a judge of the high court or master of the high court and yeah that was a really interesting proposition because that defendant individual was trying to say just because I'm in prison <laughs> for this abuse I didn't do it and Although we had to have a hearing about it, it got quite short shrift and was kicked out fairly resolutely. So in respect of the perpetrator, I think another thing that just to be live to is not something we're going to talk about in depth today, but it's also making sure that they've got enough money, isn't it? Because you don't want to sue somebody who has no money because it's a lot for an individual to go through, to end up with a piece of paper that says you've been compensated, but to never actually see that cash. That's right. I mean, there's, you, you
1: could sue somebody and get a judgment in your favour from the court, but if, if they're never going to be able to pay you any money, then the question arises, is it going to have been worth going through that? And so um, what we'll do is look to see whether or not the perpetrator has any assets and whether they're worth suing, uh, because if they're not, as you say, it's a lot to go through a trial. Um, if in the end it's not going to get you compensation, and that's all the civil courts can achieve, they can only they can only get you compensation.
0: So thank you so much for joining us, Nina. I really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure to be here. No problem. And speak to you soon. Thanks, everyone. Cheers.